May 27, 2005, Gloria Noble Johnson of Cougar Ridge. Dear Gloria Noble Johnson, you asked me if I thought there was no reason to breed exotic cats, and it sounded like your thoughts on that are evolving. I am early on in that process and thought that sharing how this belief has come to be may aid you in the unfolding of your path. I always loved cats and knew I would do something for them someday, but I left home at 15 and was a street urchin for two years before marrying an auto mechanic. The next decade was spent, as most probably are, raising a family, earning a living, and being too tired at the end of the day to do anything but collapse on the couch. By the time I was 23, I was divorced and still raising my daughter. Two of the children had been his from a previous marriage and earning a living. I felt more and more that something really big and expensive was going to become my burden, but had no idea what it was. So I worked seven days a week and reinvested every penny we didn't have to have for food. Being caught up in the rat race, I didn't spend any time thinking about the big picture. I remarried at 30 and started the sanctuary the next year. The evolution of the sanctuary was pretty average. We had a pet bobcat, and when we went in search for another one, discovered that 56 were going to be slaughtered at a fur farm and brought all of them home. Unable to give personal attention to 57 lynx, we placed them in homes where possible. We bought out two more fur farms and began asking everyone who had cats about how to care for them. We met all of the people you usually meet at that stage, the breeders, the dealers, the users, the educators, and the exploiters who all had very polished media sound bites that they had rehearsed for years to justify what they did. To newbies like us, who knew nothing of the facts, it all sounded very noble. We met Robert Bowdy, Daryl Atkinson, Doc Antle, Peter Karen, Judy Watson, and on and on I could go for pages. They seemed to be the experts, and there was no one else to ask. Zoos wouldn't talk to the private sector, and most of the places calling themselves sanctuaries explained that they had to breed and sell in order to support the cats they had already bred and not sold. The educators quoted famous people by saying that people will only save what they love, indicating that by taking animals to schools, flea markets, and shopping centers, we were teaching people to care about animals, and that would ultimately save them. Well, we fell for all of it. Then, one day, we were in an exotic animal auction, and I recognized a cat being sold. I knew he was a kitten I had raised and placed in what I thought would be his forever home. We bought him and brought him home, and I began microchipping all of our cats. Never again was I going to wonder if a cat of ours had wound up on that downward spiral. People began asking me to take back cats we had placed, and I always did. I began to realize that unlike me, when people committed to an animal, it only meant that they were committed as long as it was fun, or at least convenient. My husband was suffering from Alzheimer's by now, and totally irrational. I couldn't help him from breeding. I couldn't stop him from breeding and selling, but I started sneaking cats to the vet and having them neutered. He could pair up cats until the cows came home, but they were not having any kittens. I lost him in 1997 when I was 36, and our assets were tied up in court and obliterated, I might add, over the next six years. 
The cats were costing me $400,000 a year, but the course would only allow $150,000 of my business earnings to go to the cats each year for the next six years. My daughter was 17 and graduated two years early so that she could help me care for the cats. All of my time was spent trying to figure out ways to keep the cats fed. Finally, in 2003, it was over and my new life had begun with Howie, who I just married last November. He was a retired Harvard MBA and lived frugally enough that he wouldn't have to work again. His life was all about spending time with his friends and playing golf and tennis. Now he works crazy hours like I do for no pay in order to lift some of the burden of the sanctuary off me. He has used his special talents and people skills to get a lot of media exposure for us. I always believed that if people knew what we were doing, they would support us. It was a long-winded way to get to where I meant to start this letter. Because I now don't have all of the burdens I have had in the past, I have been able to sort out, I have been able to sort of hover over the situation and take a good look at it. I am amazed at how simple things look from 30,000 feet up. I asked myself, what is the problem? How can I fix it? It's been my observation that there are hundreds of exotic cats each year that end up unwanted, which usually ends very badly for them. Even the people who do keep them for their whole life usually keep them in conditions that we would equate to life in prison at best. So it got me to wondering as to why. Too often, when I ask myself that, the answer is because that is the way I always did it or always believed. I discovered that no one outside of the species survival plan was actually breeding for conservation back in 1999 when I became active on those committees in the AZA. My task was defined was to define all of the cage space in zoos and the census of all exotic cats of known origin, which means pedigreed back to the wild, that would be viable in breeding for true genetic conservation. None of the backyard breeders in Florida were holding animals that could be traced back to their historical origins. The bounty cats especially are known around the globe, not only in AZA, but in the WAZA and ICUN as being the most unhealthy, inbred, lame, throwaway cats in the industry. Zoos were being encouraged to get rid of all of their unusable stock in order to free up cage space for the real conservation efforts. Since there is no demand for the big cats after they aren't cubs that draw in customers, these cats were culled or sent to brokers who then sell them at auctions to anyone with money in their pockets. The last of the myths that I believed that finally couldn't withstand the light of open questioning was the issue on taking animals out for education. I haven't done that since firing our education director in 1999 when she shoved a jungle cat into a carrier to go out to a school. Our policy had always been that if the cat didn't want to go, you just went alone. Even though I abandoned the practice long ago, I still believed that bringing people face to face with the animals, even if not in a natural environment, was still doing some good for engaging people to save wild places for wild animals. I was wrong. At the 2005 AZA Legislative Conference, Todd Willens, the senior policy advisor to the chairman, Richard Pombo, on the House Resources Committee spoke to us. While everyone was patting themselves on the back about all of the success stories in endangered species recovery, 
brought about by captive, raised, and released endangered animals, Todd pointed out that less than 1% of endangered species have recovered or improved at all as a result of the zoo efforts combined. No matter how you cut it, that still means that 99% of all endangered species continue to decline or went extinct since the Endangered Species Act was created in the 70s, he reported. For 30 years, we have been exhibiting cats in unnatural situations and saying we are doing it. I wonder why I said 30 years. I don't know. Because <laughs> uh, it was not 30 years that we were doing it, so I don't know who the we here is that I'm talking about. For 30 years, we have been exhibiting cats in unnatural situations and saying we are doing it to make people care, and it hasn't worked. Einstein's definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect a different outcome. So, now the hard part. How do I fix it? I can't fix the problem of shrinking habitat caused by the explosion of the human population. I can't do it in Florida, and I can't do it globally. I can stop the suffering and abuse that exotic cats face as a result of being kept as pets, traded like used cars, or used in entertainment. I believe that I can because I believe that the crisis of exotic cats escaping, killing, and mauling people has reached an epidemic level that legislators are willing to respond to. I believe that the majority of people would agree that there is no reason that an animal should be purposely bred for life in a cage just because we want to see one. It's not, if it's not for the good of the animal, and it's not for the good of the species, then what other purpose is served in allowing the practice of using and abandoning exotic cats? Just my rambling thoughts on the matter, signed Carol. So this was 2005. I'm recording this now. In 2021, <laughs> I really thought that our Congress could figure this out before now. And we have pressed and pressed and pressed. And we are finally, I think, about to bring to an end the cub petting, which is driving all of this abuse. But, oh my God, what a long, hard slog this has been. And along the way, I tried to educate people about why it is that this captive breeding is not working. And they didn't want to be educated because they make a lot of money off of captive breeding and exploiting the cubs and pimping them out as pay-to-play props. So they don't want to hear the truth and have been really good at, at um, crushing our, our efforts to try and protect these cats. But no more. No more. I think we are finally on the edge of ending this problem once and for all. And that's the first thing that we have to do to save them in the wild.